This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Marlo can make an inconvenient nigga disappear, can he? <laughs> he using them shut up row houses. Dump a body in there. No one could tell one smell from another. Well, whatever he doing, he cold, but he ain't stupid. Shit, man, yo, if this was the old days? Yeah, now, well, the thing about the old days, they the old days. Yo, who you got? I got Prez. Prez what? I got Mr. Scott. I fucking hate that file, bitch. All right, Van, we are upon episode three in season four called Homerooms. Van, did you guys do homerooms in Baton Rouge? Yeah, we had them. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that big of a deal, though. We had a homeroom, and it was the room where it kind of was like the central hub for everything that was going on. But it wasn't like a, I don't know, what what, what was a homeroom where you were from? Like, what did it mean to have homeroom? So that was kind of, it was kind of like, um, you know, and the foundation is not the right word I'm looking for, but it was kind of like headquarters, right? So, mm-hmm. like all the official school business took place in homeroom, as in yeah. forms that needed to be filled out. You know, mm-hmm. your homeroom teacher kind of set the tone for the day. And the only homeroom that I had was in middle school, and the only homeroom teacher I remember, I think her name was Mrs. Walker, and when I was in eighth grade or whatever. And so, you know, that's because you were on different schedules. So some of your classmates, you might actually not see again until it was homeroom. That's mm-hmm. the way that we operated. But so seeing, you know, this being called homeroom and just being back, you know, looking at a, a setting that takes place in middle school, you know, I'm having a lot of middle middle school memories as I, as I watch this. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's kind of dope. Yeah. Like in high school, ninth grade year, I had first hour PE, which you was- first hour? Yeah. Damn, that kind of sucks. Yeah, well, it, it, like later on, I when I started to rise up the ranks football-wise, like I moved to seventh hour PE, which was, you know, the football class so you can go start practice. But having first hour PE was weird because we didn't have showers. I was just going to, you know, I was just thinking that. I was like, now, Van, were you able to actually get clean or were you like musty all day? <laughs> Funk nasty. <laughs> And by the way, like we used to, like we were doing all the sports and I was having fun, you know, they're playing basketball. But then you go to the next funk, nasty dog for like three months until I, I switched it to seventh hour PE. Jeez. Middle school was probably easily my most awkward years. I got the worst grades in eighth grade. And the way the middle school worked where I was, we um, my middle school was seven through nine. So I didn't go to high school until 10th grade. Mm. Right. And so so in ninth grade, it was cool, though, because being in the middle school, you kind of felt like you were a senior. 
Right. Right. You're the top dog. You're the ninth graders. Right. Whereas, I mean, of course, a lot of people, you had the option of leaving and going to high school after eighth grade or leaving after ninth grade. But I took the option as like, because you heard all these horror stories about being hazed as a freshman going to high school. I was like, you know what? I'd rather stay and be the big fish in the little pond. And then when I get to 10th mm. grade, see what I'm saying? A little more easier to integrate because I'm a 10th grader. So I ain't at the yeah. bottom of the social pecking order. I'm like, I get it. Yeah. You know, so it was strategic on my part, if you will. Strategery. Strategery. But nevertheless, yes, Homerooms is the name of this particular episode of The Wire. Van, what were your takeaways here from Homerooms? Yeah, so here I, I looked at a lot of people's sort of um, the resistance to power, the harsh resistance to power that was going on in these situations. This is when a lot of the systems tried to clamp down, right? You know what I mean? So Lester and Major Crimes been getting a little, getting a little willy getting a little wily, getting a little wild, you know, stirring up some things politically, they got to get clamped down on, get kind of get put in their place. We actually, this episode sees really this, the dismantling of major crimes, or uh, really when you, when, you, when you look at it, it gets taken apart. And it's actually monumental in that way that something that's been so central to the development of the show, uh, for all intents and purposes, gets uh, really shredded. In this episode, you think, what is the wire without major crimes? And in this particular season, you just get the feeling that major crimes itself is not going to play a large part, at least for now, in, in what's going on. Um, and, and you see that. Oh, that's one of the things I, I, I love about the series is like they're not afraid to make bold choices that typically you don't make in television. When you think about what they established in season one and you totally have the impression, and even in season two, when they shift the focus to the docs, that major crimes will always be the foundation of this show. What they're working on, who they're pursuing, their ups and downs as an institution within the police department. So to go completely away from that and to say, you know what? Unlike previous seasons, and especially the last season where major crimes started its most intact that it had. Yeah. To go from that to, despite all the great police work that this unit has produced, to completely break them up, which in itself is a statement. Because yeah. I think the inertia is something that David Simon and Ed Burns wanted us to feel, that no matter how hard you try sometimes, no matter how much you believe in breaking the system from inside, it doesn't work because you're up against something so much more powerful that needs to be dismantled. And a lot of it is going to feel like you being... Uh, the guinea pig or the mouse that's just running in place, that's just on the hamster wheel constantly and not really making any progress. So uh, for that, it's sort of disappointing. But at the same time, the brilliance of to me season four is that despite the fact you see that dismantling, you don't actually mind as much. I don't know why, but it doesn't. I, or did you mind? I, I didn't mind as much. I did mind because I'm distracted. Yes. <laughs> I'm distracted being caught up in the lives of these new, young, fresh faces and what's going on with Carcetti. There, It's just like life. There are other things to worry about. And the show reflects life in that way so well. You know, we just talked about being in high school, right? You know, or being in middle school. Think about the things that you cared about then. Mm. Think about how many, the only thing that, the one thing that life does better than anything else is give you more things to be concerned about. 
And that's why The Wire as a show resonates so much with me because it gets the rhythms of life down. Like season one of The Wire, you cared so much about Avon and, and Stringer and, uh, and D'Angelo. But as the show moves on, they just give you more things to care about. Now I'm looking at the show and I'm invested into Michael and Duquan and Naaman and Carcetti and into the new problems of Lester and Kima, the new life of McNulty and all of those things. So, you know, uh, kind of looking at dismantling or, or the demise of major crimes, it's like, yo, it's like what happens when you're in the ninth grade, you know? And then what happens when you're in the 12th grade? When you're in the 12th grade, you have a whole new set of priorities, and that's really what life is. And whereas other television shows try to make you care about the same characters for seven or eight seasons, The Wire doesn't even try to do that. It it constantly puts something new on your plate. Yeah, and realize they're hinging the show in this season on a unproven group of young actors, okay? You know, between Naaman and Daquan and and Michael and Randy. Like, these are their first major roles. And so to hinge the entire foundation of this season on them, that's a bold and daring step, one that, that paid off dividends. All right, let's get to the recap here of what happens in this episode. Guess who's back? Omar. <laughs> and he's got a new lover, Reynaldo. And he doesn't exactly love this kind of low-key existence. Uh, a question I thought of being, you know, introduced to another one of Omar's uh, new boyfriends. Is Omar like a serial monogamist? Yeah, Omar needs, Omar is like Achilles. Now, I'm going to break some news to you guys right now. Patrocles and Achilles were lovers. So, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Spoiler I, alert. I, I, spoiler <laughs> alert. I know that you guys all saw Troy and you thought that Achilles was so upset about the killing of Patrocles because he that was like his big cousin. They were they liked each other. That was a, like they were in a thing. It was a whole thing. So there you go. And that's kind of who Omar is. Omar is the Achilles in more than one way of West Baltimore. And, and Achilles had a younger male lover who was also a warrior partner with him. Uh, Patrocles was a mermaid. So I'm, I'm glad I'm taking people to the Odyssey. Know, right? like, <laughs> right, right. Little did you know, Greek mythology was right, going to be part I'm, of this podcast. I'm glad I'm taking people to the Odyssey. But what I'm saying is, and that's kind of what Omar is. Omar has sort of a warrior lover partner that he's always going to keep. You're not going to be able to understand Omar's lifestyle unless you can be right there with him. If you're going to be right there with him, you're going to be right there with him. So that's kind of thing. Always a pretty boy, too. Omar likes him pretty. He does. Like, he he has a type. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, he definitely kind of has a type. Uh, so, again, we got somebody new on the scene. Uh, Bunny Colvin, who is finding civilian life isn't so easy to manage. Uh, I don't know if he misses. He definitely doesn't miss the bureaucracy of being a cop, but he misses the authority of being a police officer, as we see in a pretty important scene in this episode. Marlo steps to Bodie and makes him a disrespectful offer that he can't refuse. Yeah. Damn, <laughs> right? Yeah, I know, right? Carcetti, uh, he, him filleting Royce during the debate pays off. He's now within eight points. And Royce is finally starting to take him seriously as a candidate and realizes that threatening his position, that this was something he laughed off previously. And now he sees that 
hey, this guy really could win. Uh, major crimes, as you mentioned, this is this dismantling of this unit that has been such the core of this series. They got a new lieutenant who uh, is a micromanaging asshole, <laughs> Lieutenant mm-hmm. Mary Mao, And Prez is off to a pretty rocky start as a homeroom teacher. Yeah. That also happens. Uh, but for uh, purposes of this episode, we're going to focus our attention and our character deep dive on Daquan. I really hate, as I said, I think in the previous episode, that his nickname is Dookie, because I think that is one of the ugliest words in vernacular. Mm. It's like, oh, I don't, like it. I, don't yeah. like it. I told you, do- Dookie and Coochie. No. You hate them. Hate Hard pass. Hard yeah. pass. So I'm going to refer to him as Daquan. So this character... Um, how do you uh, how do you put him into perspective and context? What do you what do you love about this character and explain why he resonates both within the series and with you? I know I just asked you 62 questions at once, but I have a feeling you were you were going to answer all of them anyway. I get it. Um, so I just want everyone to know that Duquan, we all you can all recognize Duquan when you're kind of in the hood or in the neighborhood. There are certain kids that everything is just too much for them, right? I like Duquan as Michael's foil, okay? That's what I mean. So Michael comes from a home that is just all fucked up and dysfunctional, all right? And we're going to learn the degree to which Michael has been a victim in his own home later on, okay? Now, what has that done to him? We talk about the Michaels of, of these situations all the time. It's made him hard. It's made him survive. Even Randy, to a degree, in this episode, we see Randy, everything that Randy does, Randy has learned how to survive and how to how to sort of finesse the system, get what he wants, still make money, you know, his little capers and all of that, things like that. So you see examples and they're touted throughout society, right? You know, you hear about him in rap songs and you read about him and, and you watch him in movies about people who have come from these depressed and underprivileged situations, and it really just brings the dog out of them. I had to get over it. I had to hustle my back to the wall, ashy knuckles. You know what I'm saying? Pocket filled with a lot of lint, not a cent, got a vent. You know, y'all, y'all, y'all know all of that. You've heard about that. This made me tough. You know who they don't write any poems for, any rap verses for, or any movies for? Duquan. They don't write any, they don't write any love letters to the kids that it's too much for them. They don't talk about the plight and the horror of kids that get swallowed under the depravity of their situation, who have parents that are preying on them, who have friends that are making fun of them, who have to live their life as the outcast kid in a situation, uh, or, or where there's sharks around, where there's so many sharks around, nobody goes to check on the guppies, you know? And those are the ones that slip through the cracks. Those are the ones that don't get to live a little bit of life as a drug boy or as a whatever and then get killed out. Those are the ones that never have a life. You see what I'm saying? They never really have a life. And when I see Duquan, I see... Somebody who is just a kid. Somebody who doesn't have a trigger inside of him that's going to go and make him uh, become something um, that is 
so diamond hard that they're going to be uncrushable under the weight of what they're what it is that they're going through. And when we talk about who we want to protect and who we want to pull closer to us and who we really want to get out of these situations, to be honest with you, we're talking about all of these kids, but we're specifically, specifically talking about the Duquans, the people who don't have the internal defense mechanism or the external defense mechanism to fight off all the predatory parts of their surroundings that exist every single day and every single hour. I know we, throughout the course of this series, it's a lot, it's it's characters or certain characters that kind of break your heart. Wallace was one of those characters. Randy is one of those characters. But for me, the most heartbreaking character in The Wire is definitely Daquan. Because I know that, to your point, much of television and film, and even to some degree what we have seen across our neighborhoods, depending on the type of neighborhood you obviously grew up in. But if you grew up in mm-hmm. an underprivileged ne- neighborhood or the type of city like Baltimore, uh, like you and I, you know, uh, kind of grew up in, then I see a lot more Daquans than I do Michaels. The Michaels Absolutely. exist. So Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, the Michaels exist. The Namans exist. The Randys exist. Versions of these, all of these guys exist. But the one to me that is most prevalent is the Daquans. I mean, we pass by Daquans every day. And in case people hadn't made the connective tissue, Daquan is Bubbles. That is who Daquan is, right? Right. That we're looking at how Bubbles became Bubbles right now when we're watching Daquan. The one thing that makes, I mean, there are many things that make his character so heartbreaking, but I think it's the fact that despite being surrounded, even in his immediate friendship group with kids who do have a harder edge, you know, Donut and Randy and all of them, like they have an edge to them that he doesn't have is his, despite being in a world that's marred and ugly, I don't know how he maintains this innocence about him. He's decent. He's decent, right? Yeah. Yeah, and we see it on display in this episode. I mean, we see it throughout, but really this is where it drives it home at first because he's in this classroom and, you know, the, the girl slashes the other girl's face. Letitia, I think that was her name. She. She slashes her face of this woman, of this of this child that's been bullied as well. And him pulling out the um, the fan mm-hmm. was such a powerful scene. Um, mm-hmm. I know we'll get to, to best scenes in a minute, but I, I think that was that was the best scene in, in this episode because it did show that he just saw something horrific and ugly and damaging happen. And even though it may seem kind of awkward, him extending that bit of humanity to make somebody who had just, you know, done something that was attempted murder, essentially, that he had compassion for them in that moment just lets you further know, like, the the type of person that he is. Dookie has principles. He's, mm-hmm. di- you know, they all have principles in their own way, but he has a different set of principles than everybody else. There's an innocence to him. And even the people in his peer group who met, who um, bully him, they even know it. They know mm-hmm. that he's different. He's mm-hmm. smart. Right. He uh, he reads, he gets stuff. He's a very he's a very, you know, nuanced kid, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that he is still a kid. And that's what makes his while following his journey all the more heartbreaking, because you could just see if he just had a different option, if he just had a different access point. This kid could be the next Steve Jobs. He could be brilliant. He could be doing a lot of things, but he is not 
he doesn't have that survivalist mentality or instincts that the rest of them have. It, it's not going to take much for him to be drug under by his circumstances. Yeah. And I think also that has to do with the fact that he is victimized every single day of his life. And, you know, a lot of people that are victimized that much, they in turn can't wait to victimize somebody else. But then other people never want to victimize anyone once they've been victimized. Something that strikes me about the scene with the fan is that he doesn't he doesn't just, uh, you know, put the fan on her face to cool her face down or to give her some relief. He gives it to her. So, like, think about that. This is somebody who doesn't have anything. Who the only thing that he knows in his life is being taken from, right? They, uh, the in a previous episode, you know, the school sends over some clean clothes for him, and they say only give them to Daquan because if you give them to his parents, his parents will steal the clothes, right? They'll take the clothes. Think about somebody like that giving something that he has for whatever reason to somebody else, gives it to him. So here's a little bit of the fan and then take this. You need this more than I do. I mean, really, to be honest with you, there's something special in the kid. And when you talk about, and I've said it before on here, capitalization and what types of personalities and what types of talent um, are slipping through the cracks in you know, depressed areas everywhere because we don't have the real resources to protect and nurture kids like Duquan. That's what you're talking about. You're talking about somebody who's inquisitive, who is uh, empathetic, and who all who has all the qualities of an A plus member of society, but because the rest of us are D plus members of society, uh, we don't give these kids sort of the the res- the resources that they need or the protection that they need to even nurture out of them what they could be. And so when you see him and and he's getting it from everywhere. Even his group, his friend group, right? That protect him, he still has to hear it there. There's another scene with Duquan when they're walking to the on the first day of school, right? They're walking on the first day of school and Randy has a paper bag in his hand. Uh, and I'm assuming that's Randy's lunch. Okay. And without even being asked, without even being asked, Randy hands the paper bag to Daquan. He hands it to him here when, when they're walking into school. This, and Daquan says, thanks, man. So, w- whereas, so let's, let's actually take that scene again. I want people to pay attention to that scene. So they get there, right? And Randy and Mike dap each other, they're all happy to see each other. Uh, when Duquan walks up, they kind of look like Randy kind of looks at him like, Duke. Like it's not even like as he's not as jubilant to see him, right? But he knows what he needs. He needs the food. So everybody understands that this kid is in crisis. Everybody gets that this kid is in crisis. So if everybody understands it, right? If the kids that he's playing with get it. If the people at the school get it, if everyone in the neighborhood get it, why can't nobody help them? Think about what a massive failing that is across the board. And think about how much that exists all over the place. You have something here that everyone realizes. One individual is struggling, but there's not a real way to help them. 
That's it's that's essentially the question that this show asks. Like even more so, it's like everyone realized this this is a problem. Everyone realizes this isn't working. Why can't we fix it? And we're going to see that play out through this character. It's one of the more powerful characters in the show. It certainly is. Yeah, I think that's the the entire season in a nutshell. Is like you see these kids; their problems are so obvious, and you're wondering why is it that there's no tangible way to actually, you know, reach them? There are some ways that that get exposed um, throughout the course of this season. But generally speaking, it's sort of like everybody around them is okay with them being lost. Daquan is in a family full of addicts and he cannot properly provide for himself. He can't even manage something that is, you know, sort of intrinsic to to basic humanity, which is the ability to stay clean. And by stay clean, I don't mean drugs, is that he can't physically stay clean, you know, and and his hygiene is a constant uh, issue in this. And I think it's symbolic because there are there are certain things that basic dignity requires. And one of them is the ability to be able to, you know, perform basic hygienic functions on yourself. And he doesn't even have that. Right. And that just Mm -hmm. as much as all the other kids don't have certain things, the one thing they do have is the ability to have clean clothes and to be clean. And him not having that just is the symbol of not just how bad things are, but just how much of basic dignity he has been robbed of. And he's in middle school. I mean, and this has been going on for a long time, too. Like, it's not like he just showed up one day like this in school. He was always like that. And, you know, it gives people license at any moment when they're not feeling, you know, when they've been degraded in their own lives or when things are going in their own lives Unfortunately, Daquan's character serves as the person that is the immediate punching bag for just about everybody else, except for maybe Michael, because he's the one who really, really gets it. He may not be able to show it because he has emotional issues himself that he's dealing with. But as soon as they start turning on Naaman, who's the first person Naaman turns on is, is Daquan. And even in, you know, this classroom setting is that something's not going right. Where's Daquan? Let me make me immediately feel better about myself. And I think because he's so smart and to be as young as he is, he's actually pretty emotionally intelligent. Mm -hmm. He actually understands that while he can't contribute much because he doesn't have much or doesn't have anything, but what he can contribute to this setting is that... I'm okay with being the punching bag for everybody Giving else. them an outlet to get their shit off. Yeah, he knows this. And that's what makes his character, I think, even more, not just more likable, but as we see his journey, that's what makes it so heartbreaking is that he had nothing and selflessly gave to other people constantly. You know, mm-hmm. be it the small fan, a fan of which he found on the street and tinkered with. And that's right. what I was getting at. Like, there's a certain genius about him that you can see that he's a tinkerer. He's a reader that mm-hmm. the intellect is there. So he doesn't have much, as you pointed out. And he gives that to this young lady and who has done probably the most horrific thing she's ever done in her life. And he's constantly kind of doing that, which that's why I easily can say that, like, this is the most heartbreaking character because of not just what happens to him, but because of that selflessness that he automatically possesses. I completely agree. I just, you know, it's it's another character that we kind of uh, look at as sort of 
humanizing everything. But more than anything, it's a character that like every time, you know, he gets a chance, you get to see him, you see what the cost of all of this dysfunction really is. And it's not, it's not stats and like figures and, you know, cause you, you go from the courts where you're talking about people being killed and you go from the politicians where you're talking about people getting killed and crime and all of this stuff like this. And then you go to the police department where you're talking about, you know, cases going from red to black and all of this stuff like that. And you forget that within all of these numbers that are being tossed around, it's like people getting killed. Hmm. Like these are all like human beings dying. You know, human beings getting exploited, messed over and, 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 and robbed and cut up and stuff like that. And then you come back and you have a character like Duquan who gives a heartbeat to some of that. You see the exploitation of these communities in him and what the cost really is. And like, it's very important that you get the chance to see that, especially on such an innocent face. I probably should have explained this when we did our, um, the first episode of this season. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons why this, this season is my favorite of the wire season is because it reminds me of a reporting assignment that I did when I worked at the Detroit free press in my, um, uh, early and early in mid twenties, early, but early twenties to like late twenties. Um, the, uh, the free press, uh, the largest paper in, in Michigan. And I was back in Detroit where I'm originally from when, um, it was years, years before I was there, they took a, a group because Detroit's educational system, much like many in the inner city, looks a lot like Baltimore's. They took a group of kindergartners at this elementary school, at-risk elementary school, and they gave this class of kindergartners um, uh, scholarships, college scholarships. They said, you get to 18, you're about to graduate, this scholarship will be waiting for you. And it was, uh, when I was there, it was the time in which those uh, kindergartners would be graduating from high school or were supposed to be. So me and another reporter were tasked with the job of going back to see what happened to that kindergarten class, to see how many of them stayed on track that they based off the fact that they were given this opportunity at the beginning of their scholastic journey. Yeah. Scholastic journey. They're given this boost right out the gate to see what would happen. And less than five of those kids were in the position to actually take advantage of that scholarship. So we tracked down every single kid and there was a lot of very heartbreaking stories. I was thankful that all of them were alive. So that part was good. And it's, that feels like a weird thing to be thankful for, but it was true. But many of them, they have been eaten up by these same circumstances, poverty, drug addicted parents, all of the things that you see bear out in this series. You know, it was one that wound up going to a school that if you wanted to be like a NASCAR mechanic, that was what he used the scholarship for. But the fact that of like 20 something kids that I think four or five actually were in a position to take advantage of this, it said a lot about how environments, regardless of what bits of success you may start off with about how if you're not in the right environment and you're constantly going through this spin cycle that these environments tend to create, it's not, it doesn't matter if a, a college scholarship at age five doesn't matter if over the course of the next 15 years or, or 13 years or whatever, I should say, if all of these things that are around you continually eat at your growth and prevent you from actually becoming the best of what you can. And so it was a really interesting social experiment as well as, um, you know, something that uh, helped me understand about how when systems are bad, you can't achieve your way out of a bad system. You can't. You can't. 
You, you cannot. And so, as, no. And so as much as we may see the promise in any of these kids here in season four, because you see it in little glimpses, the fact is they cannot achieve themselves out of systematic injustice and racism and educational failure. They can't. Yeah. And I want to I say one thing about that before we leave. I know you guys, somebody right now is listening to this and goes, well, what if Duquan would have been born uh, six foot nine, 225 pounds? I just want you guys to know something. Those guys get it too. The ones that you see that make it out of it, that's still the that's still a rare case. Like those guys get it too. Like there's no surefire lottery ticket out of this function. There's no surefire guarantee of success in this life period, but there is a much better chance of that success if you come from a place that is nurturing, gratifying, and safe. And when we talk about addressing systems, we're talking about addressing systems uh, for the Duquans of the world, for the people that have what they need, but just need a little protection um, uh, and a little bit of structure in their lives. And so, but that should really be eye opening to people to understand the degree of difficulty. This is why I always say LeBron James is a modern marvel because there is no way that somebody that grew up the way that he did should be as successful as he is. Now, thankfully, it was through basketball um, and that that was able to rescue him. But you're talking about somebody whose mother was 14, 15 years old when she had him. They moved 11 times. I mean, there was nothing about LeBron's upbringing that said he should be a success whatsoever. Nothing. Luckily, not only was he able to play basketball, but he was able to stay on course. The really interesting conversations, like even being 6'9 and 250 or being athletically gifted, it, it it's still quite difficult to get yourself in a position where you can use that talent to further yourselves and lives. Because the most interesting conversations I always have with athletes when I ask them growing up, who is the best athlete you played against? It's never anybody you know. And it, the story's always the same. It's a running joke. It's like, this dude was cold. Blah, 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 blah. Couldn't stay out the street. Yep. End up, end up getting drunk and getting into a car accident. Like, ended up ODing. Like, we know ab- you were absolutely right about that. It's a joke when, when, when you ask these guys. It's like, I was good. But there was a guy, I'm not who saying there's somebody yep. who was better. Yeah. Yep. So, and yeah. and then when you hear that, you're like, well, what the? And then that's when you know, like, the, the margin of error, even if you're very talented, if you come from a certain environment, your margin of error is nothing. Like, right. literally one decision and all your talent, all your possibilities could be completely gone. Thank and uh, with this season and with these kids, we're seeing it happen by degrees. It's death by a thousand paper cuts for all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right. Moving on from our character deep dive. We meet a new character, by the way, in this one. Um, You know, we're just talking about the kids. I believe this is the first time that we physically lay eyes on Bug, Michael's younger brother. Yes. First time we see Bug. First time we see Bug. So that's definitely something for people to get to keep in mind. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, 
you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, Van, let's go over some of the best scenes, or I should, I was thinking about this. I guess we should say best scene slash moments because sometimes there's a continual, uh, it, it may be a collection of scenes all based yeah. on the same thing, right? You yeah, know, like, right. you know, we talked about how much we love Bernard and Squeak. Bernard and Squeak had like eight scenes that were like amazing, right? right. So those are like moments more so than just like one particular scene. So anyway, what were some of your best scenes and moments in Homerooms? Well, the best scene is Omar and the Honey Nut Cheerios. You only got no Honey Nut. What do you see? They don't have the honey nut? I don't even want this, guy. Why not? It ain't what you're taking, it's who you're taking it from, you feel me? That's the that's the <laughs> You that, think that's that, better? You think that's better than the face slash and Yeah. It okay. Is. All right. I'm not gonna lie, man. The face slash is hard for me. Yeah. The face slash is probably a more impactful scene. Right. But I'll tell you why the Omar scene is the best scene to me. And it's an easy choice for me. And I know people are going to be like, oh, that's an obvious pick. But the reason why it is is because it gives you so much information into who Omar Little really is, right? So number one, let's look at the scene. Omar is in a row house, right? But he still wears silk pajamas to sleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> that tells you a lot about Omar, right? Omar likes a little comfort, even though he lives an uncomfortable existence. And he likes a little luxury, too. Likes a little luxury. Likes to feel it. You know what I mean? Omar gets up to take that big-ass gun to go and get some Honey Nut Cheerios. Just shows In his you, silk pajamas. In his silk pajamas, what is it like to be Omar? It is the fact that, you know, Omar's life means even if I'm going to go up the street, that's how dangerous it is to be Omar Little. I got to bring the big ass gun. But he's dangerous, but respected because who can go to the store even with a get in your silk pajamas? Yeah, right. Well, he actually leaves the gun, right? And then you know what we realize? Omar is the gun. So when it comes to Omar Little, People aren't afraid of the gun. They're afraid of Omar. And that's a very important thing. That's a distinction. 
it's one thing to have people afraid of what you can do. It's another thing to have people afraid of you. Because when they when it's you, you're right. It's fear and it's respect. It's what if we take our shot and we miss? You know what I mean? We know he's not going to miss. So as he walks up there to get everything, you see so much about his life. You see big picture problems. I'm worried about whether or not I'm going to make it there and back. You see little problems. They don't have any honey nut. He comes back. You see like, you see the issues of, uh, you see Omar when he takes the, um, when he sees the, the, the Royce campaign thing. He takes the Royce campaign placard or whatever it is and he rips it off and throws it down. Doesn't want to have any part of that. Thinks it's bullshit. They're very weird. It's a, it's such a perfect scene because we think that we know everything about this character, but it's almost, and you know, for all intents and purposes, we do, but it's almost a reintroduction into him because we see his new life. You know, we see the fact that he's lacking something. He's missing something. There's a part, there's something that Omar gets. Omar gets a rush from stealing from people, from stealing from the right people. So it's not enough for you to just give it to him. He has to take it from the right people. And I just think it, it very, very rarely in any, any uh, piece of television or, or any work at all, do you learn so much about somebody from such an entertaining scene uh, that has almost zero dialogue in it. And to your point, I mean, I think we figure out with this scene that for Omar, a sense of justice has to exist for him to have a purpose. Uh -huh. You know, his biggest get was bringing down Avon and Stringer, especially Stringer. I mean, that was the one he had had. And so now just the idea of just robbing drug dealers just to rob him, he's just like, all right, whatever. You know, like it doesn't yeah. hold the same appeal because he has no, there's no sense of justice in this for him. He's not on a, on a war path. He's not seeking vengeance. He's not seeking payback. It's like, it doesn't resonate the same. But might I, I say though, one, that's an excellent choice in cereal, Honey Nut Cheerios. Very underrated. I will say that the the fact that he settled for the regular Cheerios, I think that's what he brought back. That disturbed me because there's there's so many other things I would have picked beyond regular. Like I wouldn't go from Honey Nut like to regular Cheerios. There's not a bigger gap in anything as there is a gap between Honey Nut Cheerios and regular Cheerios. Like regular Cheerios are trash. Regular Cheerios don't taste like anything. Like, I am so interested in how regular Cheerios became a thing. Even, I'll say this, even the gap between regular cornflakes and frosted flakes. Like, it's not that big. It's not that big. As big as Honey Nut and regular. No, because you still get you still get a delightful little crackle from the regular cornflakes to where if you add a little sugar or a little honey, you can get some facsimile of the Frosted Flakes, right? But with the Cheerios, you got to put so much sugar and then it weighs down and gets thick. Right, you have nothing but sugar at the bottom of it, like when you're done. Yeah, because it's falling through. It's just like, I'm getting a little disgusted thinking about regular Cheerios. I don't want to eat them. I don't know how they ever became a thing. Like, it should. It seems like they should have gone flavors from the beginning. Because you know what I had recently? Because it's also a very carb-friendly um, uh, cereal. Yo, apple cinnamon Cheerios? They bang. They bang. They bang. You fucking yeah. with it. Okay. I'm, okay. I, I fuck with apple cinnamon Cheerios. Never, never, never had them before. 
<laughs> never had them. But I can tell you one thing. When he came back with the regular Cheerios, I was like, damn, Omar. Maybe you should have walked to another store or something I'm saying, like that. That might have yeah. been worth another store trip. I mean, I was like, they didn't have no Captain Crunch? They had no Apple Jacks? Nothing. Would have probably come back with two more packs, too. It would be funny just Omar walking around in silk pajamas just picking up packs like fucking <laughs> Pac-Man. But there are a couple of other scenes I like, too. Bodie and Michael. I like that scene because the race for Michael has officially begun. Right. He's like a five-star linebacker out there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Michael is like Eric Gilbert. Like, LSU has a big tight end this year. It's either Eric or it's A-R-I-K. And everybody was trying to get him. It was a whole thing. It's like exactly, it's crazy. So, like, that's a big deal. Bunk in the dinner scene with McNulty. The Bunny Colvin hotel scene. What the fuck is this? She steals my money, and you're gonna lock me up? Getting charged with assault. It'll be on the charge with the theft. I'll put the cuffs on her too. Uh, uh, you in the wagon, shit, bro. Mr. Colvin, this is not acceptable. No, he's going in the wagon. Mr. Colvin, I have to insist. Thirty years of police officer, I never took cuffs off a right charge. Ain't about to start now. You're not a police officer, Mr. Colvin. Just to let you know that Bunny is not gonna be able to have one toe in. Either he's going to be law enforcement or he's going to be something else. Or he's just not the type of person, I think, in general, even if he knows he's not law enforcement. It's like he, as much as he thought he could, remember his whole thing with trying Hampsterdam was, my pension is 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 set. I'm good. I could go mm-hmm. out of here any moment. Might as well do something bold. But I think in any job that he has, he can't be the type of dude to just collect a check and not say anything. Right. Right. He just, he can't, can't do it. Especially, he can't be half of anything, especially a cop. I would say watching Randy Scheme was good. Also, I just love anything that has to do with the first day of school. I actually saw the first day of school and got excited like it was the first day of school. I used to love, everybody hated the first day of school. I don't know. Who hates the first day of school? So many people hated the first day of school. I loved, loved. First day of school was out cold. The first day of school, I loved it. So, no, those are all mine. Those are all the scenes that I really like. Oh, and and kind of the scene where Royce decides to go to war with Carcetti because it shows you something. Royce is a bad public servant, but he is a good politician. He knows how to fuck with people. He knows how to do the politician thing. He's a bad public servant, but a good politician. So those are the scenes that I liked in this episode. Yeah, I, I earmarked pretty much all of those scenes. Another one I loved is how Michael, you know, and this gets to his potential of, of why he's the most coveted drug dealer prospect in Baltimore right now, is the way he handles those three addicts who are trying to pressure him into, you know, giving them more dope or like, yeah. Trying, yeah. Hey, when he says to one of them, you need to rethink what putting a hand on me is going to get you. I was like, yeah. oh, shit. Hell right? yeah. Yeah. It's just like he has a ruthlessness about him that it's just. But again, he has his own code, but he's somebody who is, as they say, not, not to be trifled with. Really interesting in that scene where uh, the cheek slashing happened. and get the nurse. Everybody in your seat. Just lay still. Just lay still. Looking at the different reactions by everybody in the room. everybody in the room. Yes. uh, Prez is horrified. And this is somebody who 
caught, you know, who permanently damaged somebody's eye, okay, and shot and somebody. And killed the man. And yeah. killed the man, right? And he even he's horrified. He's like, what the fuck? Right. So that part was like, okay. Looking at Michael's demeanor was probably the most telling because his demeanor suggested that, oh, this is called Wednesday, right? right like he right. had seen as bad or worse. And then the fact that you had kids kind of cheering on an attempted murder happening right in front of their faces. So it was just like looking at everybody's reaction was like, wow, that's really telling. Um, I thought it was a, a lighthearted scene when Michael and Randy were uh, messing with Naaman about getting the tattoo. Oh, that's funny. That was <laughs> yeah, funny. That was a funny scene. Uh, you brought up Royce. Uh, the scene where he... You know, he he basically is is paying off Herc for staying quiet about seeing him. Don't mention it. Don't mention it, right? Like double mm-hmm. entendre all over uh, the place. So yeah, those are uh, all some of our favorite scenes. Um, uh, now there were a couple lines though I thought as well because Slim Charles, who again PR is out of control. That's the thing about the old days. They're the old days. They're the old days. They're the old days. Oh, also Royce, when it, when you mentioned that scene. When, you know, as you said, he shows that he's a shitty ass public servant, but great politician. When he says, He wants to go big dick with me. I'll show him what he can't handle. I was like, ah, mm. we've seen enough of you, sir. <laughs> File that away for the past. We've already right, seen exactly. that, sir. I was like, eh, that's an interesting reference for you. You know, it should, be no- it should be noted here. The saga of Bodie losing control over the hilltop. I have this as uh, sort of a file this away. Right. Bodie meeting Marlo in them, like the face to face. Not that he had never seen Marlo before, but that kind of back and forth. Uh, but the saga of Bodie and the Hilltop is just kind of what happens, uh, to middle management people. Bodie has no protection anymore. So that's not a scene, but it's worth mentioning that, you know, uh, Bodie's whole back and forth with the, with the, the Stanfield organization. Uh, is definitely something that's going to play itself out through the rest of the season. Yeah, definitely. A major thing to pay attention to. What were some of the things that aged the best for you in this episode? Well, the first day of school, I talked about it. The first day of school aged the best. I still got that feeling watching them. First day of school, they rushing in. You know what I mean? All of that stuff. Your hopes are so high that first day of school. Like every first day of school I had, you couldn't have told me I wasn't going to four point that year. I wasn't going to get all A's. I would be like, yo, this is it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I know whatever. And I was, you know, I got pretty decent grades. I got pretty good grades. But it was like this year, no slacking. Right. I remember I had a picture. This is so weird. I had a picture of Charlie Ward up in my room because Charlie Ward had this uh, thing that he did. Don't laugh at me. I am laughing. Sorry. (laughs) Charlie Ward had this uh, picture that was in Sports Illustrated. And he had a cap and gown on and a football and a basketball. Because Charlie Ward had fantastic grades, and he played basketball, and he played football. I don't know if you guys know out there, but Charlie Ward won the fucking Heisman Trophy. I know you. Guys, I don't know if you guys remember that, because a lot of you guys out there don't realize that the Heisman Trophy winner went undrafted. This right. Fucking crazy. Okay. It was. And I think he, he took Florida State to the Sweet 16, because I remember he it was it, the backcourt. I think it was him and Bobby Sura. Yeah, Bobby yeah. Sura. But yeah, he was he was a beast, right? All around. And I was like, you know, I asked who I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be like Charlie Ward. I'm gonna have that. And I wasn't even like fucking, I wasn't even Chuck Ward. <laughs> I wasn't like, like, like no, there's none of that. Like, I wouldn't I didn't do all of that. Like, that nigga was special. But every first day of school, 
I felt that it, this was going to be the year that I was going to make that ESPN show, Scholastic Sports America. And remember that show, SSA? Every year I thought I was going to be that, but it just, you know, whatever. How far in advance did you plan out your first day of school outfit? Uh, very far. I went to demo one time. Did I tell you the story about the Carl Kanai fit? Oh, no, please. Is this a Van Lathan sidebar? Van Lathan sidebar, Carl Kanai fit. I can't believe I've never told this story before on this podcast. So it was eighth grade, first day of school. The video that was bumping at this time was Tupac, I Get Around. It was the biggest fucking song. Everybody loved it. Still down with the underground. You know, I come around. You know what I mean? So, by the way, that's still one of my favorite songs of all time. Pac, Shock, you know what I'm saying? The whole digital underground was, it was great. But anyway, so I decided that's how I wanted to look. I wanted to look like Tupac looked in that, right? Never mind that I didn't have any abs. Tupac was running around with his shirt off in the video and stuff like that. Uh, so I decided I'm going to go to Demo, a store called Demo in the mall. Demo. I, are you sure I haven't told this story? Maybe I'm I told this story. positive you have not told this story. Okay. I will go to a store called Demo in the mall. And Demo had the stuff. So I go in there with my dad. And my dad does not understand the closing demo. He doesn't get it. I was like, Dad, I want like a, I want like, you know, jean shirts and I want like a vest. Like, you know, Pac will wear the vest, you know. And I saw it up there. A Carl Kanai fit. All brown Carl Kanai fit. And it had the little Carl Kanai plate on it, right? And I was like, that's what I want. I want that right there. I want that Carl Kanai fit. I got to have it. My dad looks at it. My dad like, this is $150. And I'm like, so what? Dad. I don't want any other school clothes. You, I can, I'll spend them all. You can spend it all if you just give me this one. It was like a jumper, top and the bottom. It will give me all of it right here. We can do it right here. He goes, like, this is all you want. I'm like, this is all I want. So I remember I told the lady, she was like, yeah, yeah, it's dope. <laughs> it's a white girl that worked at LSU. She's working at, they went to LSU. She's at demo now. I said, yeah, it's dope. Uh, so she goes and she gets it down. So then I put it on. Right. And here's the thing about this vest is the vest was meant to be worn with no shirt under it. Right. That's how Pac wore it. That's how Pac wore it. Here's the thing with me. Around this time, I had a nice, uh, uh, nice little pair of A cups going. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was a little, you know, Chubb Rock jumps up on the scene with me. Like that was me. And so like, like I put it on and I come out, you know, completely straight arms, no cuts in my arms at that point. You know, big kid, don't get me wrong. But like baby fat everywhere. You lack definition. Lack definition. So I came out and I was like, I do not fucking look like Tupac in this. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, yeah, that's the way you wear it. You wear it just like that. And I'm like, uh, no, I can't do this. And, and like she goes, uh, no, you wear it like that. It's like, no, I think I'm going to need a shirt. So I go into the thing. There's a Carl Kanai shirt. It's like a gold colored Carl Kanai shirt. And I put it on, and Jamel, I still tell you, this was the perfect outfit. It was the vest. It was the long sleeve Carl Kanai shirt, even though it was long sleeve shirt, even though it was August in Louisiana. Don't matter. Long sleeve shirt, the vest, the whole nine. And I remember, I never, I never forget this. I get on the bus, right? I got the fit. I got my Jan Sport. You know Wait, what I'm did, saying? Did you have a hat too? Like the little. The little skull beanie? Couldn't wear hats at school. Ah, gotcha. Couldn't wear hats at school. I got my my thing, and then I'll never forget, the prettiest girl in the eighth grade 
who rode my bus, who was a friend of mine, Tramika Johnson. Tramika, if you're somewhere listening to this, you were everything in eighth grade. She knows. Only one time in eighth grade, she kind of had, she was, wasn't, wasn't super hot is because she got the chicken pox and then she came back and she had the chicken pox scars. Mm. And niggas was like, ooh. But then she got, but, but then she healed and she got over the chicken pox scars. <laughs> and then she was fine again. She was fine. She's still fine. She's fine. Tramika Johnson is synonymous with fine in Baton Rouge. She's fine. Tramika Johnson. In high school, my friend Emmett ended up dating her and I was fucking jealous. Destroyed. As hell. Pissed. <laughs> anyway, Tramika Johnson looked at me. She goes, ooh, Van, are you cute? Oh, snap. That was worth it right there. That's 150 bucks well spent. That was it. I've been a simp since then. Like, that that started my career in simping. And since then, I've been a simp. What do I have to do to seem attractive? I'll do it. Because the fucking Carl Kanai outfit worked. Carl Kanai, if you can hear this, I know you be around. Shout out to Laura and the people of the Candy Pins Mansion. Carl Kanai be hanging out. Thank you. But that's my first day of school story right there. End of sidebar. That that is uh, amazing that you got that much mileage out of that Carl Knight. Like, how long did you keep that fit? I wore it to the tenth grade. Okay, no bullshit. So literally to the tenth grade, kept bringing it back until one day it was another girl uh, that ended up telling that ended up telling me, "Van, that's done." <laughs> but how long have you had that? I was like, since since McKinley Middle. She goes, since McKinley Middle. She goes, Van, that's done. People not even wearing that no more. So I got rid of it. Black women looking out for you. Try to tell Always. You, right? Always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I agree with you. That first day excitement, nothing like it. You know, that brand new Trapper Keeper, that was what I was into. Like, I needed a new notebook. I needed a new Trapper Keeper with like 88 folders in it, color coordinated. Because yep. not only did I lie to myself every year and say I was going to get the best grades ever, I also lied and said to myself and said, I'm going to be more organized. Organized. And that shit might have lasted 72 hours. And it was like, damn, you got to study this much to get all A's, man. Fuck this. I'm going to settle for my three point and be good. Yeah. (laughs) My low expectations of myself did me in uh, every uh, time. Um, I will tell you, uh, we talked a lot about that Honey Nut Cheerio scenes. To me, what aged the best out of that scene in particular is when people eat shit the last of something and they don't replace it. That's the worst. Yeah. That's like the worst. And especially if they don't replace it and it requires you to make a trip to get it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's even that's even like the ultimate. It's one thing if they drink up all the orange juice, but you got another one, right? Mm-hmm. And it's right there in the house. Or they all the cereal, but it's another box. But you know, that um and I'm sure if my husband right now was on this podcast, he would he would totally lose his mind. Cause I'm gonna tell you, I am the queen of this. I don't know where this came from. I am definitely the violator that will use the last of the toilet paper and not replace it. That's weird. That's like, that's a tough one. That's one that you like, yo, man, come on, man. God damn. Now I'm literally assed out. Right. You know what I mean? But no, it, it happens. It happens, you know, and, and it also happens like as you become an adult, you think that you learn lessons, but you didn't learn them because you like, like, if you don't feel like doing it at that moment. Right. You like, fuck it. You know what I mean? Like, and it's and it's it's hard because you're only hurting yourself, Jamel. I know. And you're hurting your I know. Husband. It's just me, but but it's one of those habits I had as a single person that I 
I really have to focus on and grow out of because, you know, when you single, you run out of toilet paper. You could be like pantsless and go walk to the linen closet and like get yeah. the shit. I'm not saying yeah. I couldn't, do, you know, whatever. Or you could just yeah. you'll be like, ah, fuck it. It's underneath the sink. I'll just go, you know, whatever. Yeah. Becomes a little problematic depending what you have to do in the bathroom, of course. Right, but, right. but generally speaking, because you used to be just you. Um, but see, I feel like there's that sweet spot between. You know, if it's totally empty, I will replace it, whatever. But I always get caught. If it's like f- like four sheets, bit. right. I'll be like, nah, it ain't time yet. But I should probably put it out there. But see, my husband is like, he's on this shit hard. So it'll be like 12 sheets left. And he'll be like, brand new toilet paper thing. That'll be a brand new toilet paper roll. will be right there. And I'm like, damn. Because he's thinking about you and you're thinking about yourself like women do. You know what? I, I I reject that. I reject you and you and your attempt to turn this back on toxic femininity. It, it is not. It, it is not. Toxic, so toxic I, I can greatly yeah. relate to that as both an yeah. offender and as somebody who's offended when Ooh. when people um, do that. I tell you what. Uh, what also I think age is the best. You had talked about how you know. Think about Royce is like he's. He's petty as fuck. So, you know, he unleashes city construction in front of Carcetti's campaign office, you know, has his signs all torn down. Certainly what age as well is politicians caring more about re-election than they do actually serving their constituents. Absolutely. Political pettiness. Political pettiness, which Royce is a huge proponent of and a huge perpetrator of, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else age the best for you? Not for me. Okay. A couple things I noted that age the worst. One of those is guessing the wrong ethnicity strictly because you don't really understand the differences between said ethnicity. So mm-hmm. when old face Andre tells Kima she looks Chinese, but also that she looks like she's from Vietnam, I was like, mm-hmm. so he just blindly throwing out Asian, uh, <laughs> like Asian cultures that she could possibly be a part of mm-hmm. has no idea. And I'm like, oh, so she's both Vietnamese and Chinese. Okay, how's that work? Just curious. <laughs> especially in a time where people used to do that. People just, nah, man. And especially like if, you know, back where I'm from, it would be, we had various different Asian cultures that were there. But because there was, we were ignorant to the differences. Everyone was Chinese. Everyone was Chinese, exactly. That's what he sounded like. And then when you would say that to somebody and they would be like, uh, yo, I'm Vietnamese. You'd be like, you'd be mad at them. Right. Even though you're the ignorant one. You're like, what do you mean you're Vietnamese? You're the <laughs> ignorant racist one. Be like, so what? It's all the same. No, it's not Literally all the same. not a lot. Yeah, like it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, but you have to learn. Learn, adapt, and grow. Yes. And well, remember that period and I don't know if it was because of uh, uh, Kimora Lee or whatever, but it was that whole thing. And, you know, as a, as a young man, you can certainly attest, but where like the hottest thing in the street was if you were black and Chinese or black and any, any Asian culture, like that was like the hot thing in the street. Like if you were an exotic woman. Blasian. I don't know that it, that ever became not hot. I'm not saying it's the hot is, but I'm saying, but it's not it's, definitely dated. <laughs> Nah, it's still blazing. Blazing. Like, it's still pretty hot, man. I'm not saying it's any hotter than anything else. I don't want it. I'm, but, but, you know. But blazing's still honest. in there. Okay. Yeah, so that, it, it, okay. Right. Okay. So being, being blazing apparently aged the best, but guessing yeah. wrong and correct ethnicities definitely aged the worst. Uh, anything else did you note it that aged the worst? 
every single fucking math problem. And I'll tell you oh, why. Oh, Jesus. Because I haven't <laughs> used any of that goddamn math or any of that stuff. You got to learn it. Hey, I'm not saying teachers that listen to this podcast, I'm not saying you don't have to learn it, but I'm saying that it doesn't fuck. I haven't not one time had to guess the speed of a train leaving Los Angeles on its way to San Diego. Never had to do it. Nope. Never once in life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Never have I had to guess the speed of a train. Ever. Ever. So it, that that aged pretty badly. Every time I see that, I'm like, you know. Why do we put kids through that? Yeah, but look, you got to learn it. You got to learn it. But it ages horribly. I don't, I, I, I don't even remember how to do the algebra that I killed myself learning. Like, killed myself learning. Literally to the point, you ever see in a movie where somebody gets frustrated and they throw their hands down and then wipe everything off of the desk? Do you know how many times I did that with Algebra 2? But I'm a smart man, relatively, but like, th that stuff was like, it was very hard for me and I worked extremely hard to never use it again. Just saying. No, it... it Algebra ages so terribly, especially since now they're they're learning a whole new math. Like they don't even do that shit anymore. Like I don't even know what this new math is, but it's like nothing compared to what we used to learn. Like I ain't never seen X or Y in anything. Like in never. what? Like never. It, this shit doesn't even make sense. You know what would have made sense teaching me how to how to uh, start a bank account or how to you know adding. We could have kept with adding and subtracting because that's the shit you use the most. Yes, yes and multiplying. Yes. Even fractions have a purpose. Do your taxes. Correct. You know what I'm saying? You know, how to docu-sign shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, like well, not docu-sign. That's easy. But the other little sign. Anyway, whatever. I'm saying is that age the worst. That's it. That's all I got to say. I could not agree more. We are tormented by these problems as kids that we we even knew did. That's why we didn't like learning. We're like, this shit is going to be terrible. The thing yeah. is, I couldn't understand is that every other math dis discipline I was sort of bad at. So... Like in eighth grade, I had pre-algebra. I was a terrible, I got D's in pre-algebra. The only time I, I ever got D's in math. But I was good at algebra one and two. I was shitty as hell at trigonometry and geometry, but great at pre-cal. Like I don't, mm. my math career was horribly inconsistent um, for sure. Uh, another thing I think that aged the worst in this episode. So when McNulty and Bart finally go get a taste, when McNulty is coerced into doing this after dinner, uh, which, by the way, what a what a flip that we have seen McNulty go from. It's like yeah. from whoring and drinking to now all of a sudden he's a family man. And on top of that, asking Beatty's permission mm -hmm. to go get to a go taste. To right, to taste, go out. It's know. like, who is McNulty and what have you done with him? Couldn't help but notice that they are drinking one of the five nastiest beers that's ever created, Rolling Rock. Never had it. Don't even do that to yourself. Only people who don't love themselves drink Rolling Rock. Yeah, I said it. Mm, Y'all need to think better of yourself if you are still drinking Rolling Rock. That shit was like fire in college and post-college. But I mean, I didn't drink it, but but everybody was like on it. And like, ugh, that shit is terrible. Mm, never, never seen it before. Like I've seen it before, but never had it before. You love yourself far too much to ever do that. All right, now on to some file this away for laters. What do you have, Ann? This is the first time we see the ring. Mm, yeah. Uh, we see The Ring, The Ring, which is a saga unto itself. The Ring is a, almost a separate wire movie, which is on the hand of Old Face Andre. When Omar and Ronaldo rob Old Face Andre, you see The Ring for the first time. That ring is a big deal. Also, Omar getting there early. 
and mm. watching and scoping out everything. Mm-hmm. That term, getting there early, seeing how everything works. I know we've seen Omar do that before, but we really have never talked about it. But in the next couple of seasons of The Wire, the tactic on how to get the drop on someone is going to become a, a, a real big deal. Those are two follow away for latest for me. And, uh, of course, we talked about, um, I mentioned something else that was, uh, uh, oh, R- Randy's scheme. Seeing Randy go from, from place to place to place to place, his scheme, that's a huge father's away for a later moment as well. Yep. Also, I'll add uh, as a father's away, Prop Joe deciding to make another run at Marlowe to collaborate oh, with yes. the co-op. Yes, That's, yes, that's a course. big father's away for later. All right, now on to some trivia. So mm. Jermaine Crawford plays Daquan. He initially auditioned for the role of Michael. And, wow. Yeah, and he made it pretty far. Like he was one of the finalists and then they decided to pivot and have him play Daquan. He had to be in hair and makeup every day for 45 minutes just to look like shit. And he said, you know, it got so bad uh, that his skin started to break out and they actually wouldn't even let him cut his hair because they wanted him to look destitute. They wanted him to look the part. So he said it was quite bothersome and inconvenient to go around constantly looking like this state of unrest, state of dishevelment, I guess I should say. Uh, If people are wondering, you know, why the... Wire decided to shift the focus to schools. Of course, the hallmark of the wire is that they always they're choosing a different institution and helping you understand why it's broken and why it's dysfunctional. But this was actually quite personal because Ed Burns, on top of being a homicide detective, Ed Burns, the co-creator, on top of being a homicide detective for many years, he also taught middle school and at City College for seven years. Wow. So so um, a lot of what we see from Prez Belusky, uh, played by Jim Trufoss, who's great in this season in particular. Uh, It is based off the experiences that Ed Burns had when he was in middle school. And and in the book, All the Pieces Matter by Jonathan Abrams, Ed Burns tells a really um, terrible but yet gripping story about how I think his first day or early on when he was teaching middle school, he asked how many people Uh, in his classroom, I mean, again, this is middle school. He asked them how many either had been shot or had known someone who was shot and like 12 kids raised their hand. Wow. And he was just like, okay. And he wanted Mm -hmm. to focus on middle school because um, in high school by that time is too late. Uh, And the dropout rate at the time when they were doing this uh, series, the dropout rate in Baltimore for high schools was about 60 or 70%. So he Jesus Christ. I know. And so he felt like this was um, an age group that needed to be focused on because this is when they turn in one direction, you know, or another. It's it's middle school. That's when they're determining what they will essentially be in life. And high school is kind of too late. That's that, though. Isn't that surprising? Because, um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, my own home city, thinking about Detroit, where... Uh, the literacy rate in Detroit is below 50%. That's, This is basic literacy. So, um, (sighs) you know, as what we have done to our educational system, public educational system in America, particularly that educational system that impacts people of color is, is really one of the great travesties of our time, but they wanted to focus on it because it often gets completely overlooked and pushed aside because as they said at the beginning of this season, kids don't vote. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's why education is not always a focus. Uh, anyway, th- those are the bits of trivia for this episode. Um, finally, Van, moment of truth. Who did you think won this episode? 
I got Bunny. Ah, good choice. I got Bunny. I think Bunny won this episode. I think this is an episode where we kind of, you know, uh, catch up with Bunny. We see where he's at. And we also see the meta- the metamorphosis happen as to where Bunny is going. And uh, Bunny in this episode is uh, a character that learns more about himself and what he is willing to be and not willing to be after his term uh, or after his his uh, his time with the Baltimore Police Department. So when I came coming away from it, I think the character that knew the most about himself after this episode was Bunny. So I gave it to Bunny. Mm, like I said, really good choice. For me, the character who won this episode or person rather is is Herc because oh. Herc <laughs> actually learned a valuable lesson that a lot of us at every stage in our lives we uh, a lot of us would do well to remember that will get you far uh, that will get you far in life and that is mind your business just mind, mind your, business. your business minding mm-hmm. your business can can get you so much further sometimes yeah. than not minding your business is unbelievable very true. He saw the mayor in this compromising position. Many different ways he could have played this. But ultimately, he played it the right way in the sense that he shut the fuck up. That's what shut he did. Shut up. Shut up. He shut up. Um, of course, you know, he did tell Valchek, which, you know, was kind of a, a mistake, but he went to him for counsel. He told right. Carver for counsel. He followed the path of least resistance. He shut up. And what do you know? He's promoted in three months. Boom. Yeah. Way to go. There I, I respect him. Way to go, Herc. One of the one of the the, the 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 few smart things he's done in the entire history of the show. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I had to recognize it because it happens so rarely with this character. It's like, yo, Herc actually won because he wound up in a better place. Uh, all right. Well, that's gonna do it for us uh, as we wrap up our breakdown of home rooms. We'll see you guys again for episode uh, four, which again, is called for Refugees. episode uh, four, which is called refugees. A lot of stuff in that episode, but van has a really hot take about that episode that mm. I won't give away now, but I mean, when I say hot, I mean like scorching hot <laughs> take. Yes. And now I put the pressure on him to reveal this take. And I did that on purpose, van, yeah. <laughs> so that you would have to stick to it. Scorching hot take about the next episode but until then keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire we'll see y'all next time This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes as a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.